Hey, we keep saying that Christmas and Thanksgiving are not mutually exclusive because Christmas is the great time when we celebrate this beautiful gift that God has given the world, salvation in Jesus Christ. Of course, we celebrate that other times of the year as well, but Christmas is one of those more profound times to do that. And so we have a lot to be thankful for, and hopefully that will just instill within us a a spirit and an attitude of gratitude that will last us throughout the year. And so we need to really recognize that in everything, we have a lot to give thanks, right? The coffee, the car, the the keys, the waking up in the morning, the air we breathe, the breath, whatever it may be. So much to be thankful for. And so I want to take a moment before we get into our uh, final message of this series uh, to reflect on this Christmas season. Next week we are starting a new series called The Kings of Christmas. And there's a card uh, on the seat in front of you that looks like this, or the the seat that you sat on, I guess, um, that looks just like this. We'll be talking about the four prominent kings of the Christmas season over the next four weeks. And our goal and our challenge is for you to take this card and use it as an invitation to somebody. Your challenge is to to invite at least one person or one family to our Christmas series uh, beginning next week. And then, of course, invite them to Christmas Eve, which is taking place on December 24th. And this Christmas Eve, actually, we have three services. It falls on a Sunday, so it's a little easier for us. 10.30, we have one service in the morning that will have the full RC kids programming. We also have a 4 p.m. service that will have birth through pre-K available. And then at the 11 p.m. service, there is no child care, though many children do tend to show up at the 11 p.m. service. They're all the same service. They'll all be by candlelight. They'll all be a beautiful service as we remember the birth of Christ this holiday season. You know, next week we will have um, additional uh, invitations that are attached to ornaments. Uh, the reason they're not with you today is because my credit card was stolen and the tags did not come in. So all the purchases I tried to make in regards to getting these prepared did not go through, so I apologize for that. But um, they will be available next week. So if you have been with us the last several years, uh, maybe even on your own tree, you have all of our Christmas series on an ornament. It's kind of a cool, to, cool way to remember all the various uh, Christmas series that we've done over the years. But it's also a really cool way to oppor- uh, opportunity to invite friends, family, neighbors, coworkers to our holiday season uh, here at Restoration Church. You can you know, put an ornament on a doorknob or, or you know, stick it on their computer in the cubicle next to you, whatever it may be. Uh, make sure that we're inviting a lot of people to Restoration this holiday season. But today we are finishing up our series, The God Who Gives, by discussing the God who gives seed to the sower. It kind of seems like an obscure text for us since we're, we're not hugely agricultural here in Levittown. Um, but the God who gives a seed to the sower, it's a passage out of 2 Corinthians 9, which we'll jump into in just a minute. Now, here's the thing. This passage does refer to the use of our money. So if you're a guest uh, with us this morning, maybe you've been just a couple of weeks and you're like, oh, of course, I come to church and what are they talking about money? Isn't that really all that the church is interested? Isn't that the only conversation the church really ever has? Uh, and my, my whole role as a pastor is to convince you to open up your, your checkbooks and your pocketbooks and to throw more money in the offering plate. Isn't that what it's really all about? And, and I would hope if you've been around here for a little while, um, you would know that that is not what we're really about. Our goal is to help you um, develop a, a greater relationship with Jesus Christ, to grow more into his image, to mature more into his likeness. That is really what we want to do and to accomplish here on any given Sunday. And so there are a couple things that I want to just reassure you of in our, in our conversations in regards to money and how we do it here at Restoration Church. First, we talk about money a lot less than Jesus did. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but money was the second, uh, the the second topic, uh, the kingdom of God was the first topic he talked about the most, but the money, the use of our money, the use of our resources and our finances 
was the second most common topic that Jesus actually discussed throughout the New Testament. And second, our goal is not for your money. I'm just going to reassure you this again. Our goal is not for your money. It's to help you develop more intimacy with Jesus Christ, to grow more into his image. And third, the way we talk about money here at Restoration Church is not based on guilt. It's never based on manipulation but really about living generously in all that we do. That is really what we're hoping to accomplish. We want to help you live generously in all that you do because that is certainly part of growing into Christ-likeness and maturing into Christ-likeness. And now, the reason that we have to learn to be generous is because generosity is not natural. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but generosity is not just something that we are born to do, or it's not something we're convinced to do even within our American culture. Generosity is not natural, and so it's something that we have to learn to do. And if it is not natural, then we need to develop a plan when it comes to our finances, and in particular in becoming generous people. If it's not something that we naturally do, then we need to develop a plan. We need to get strategic about it. Now here's the thing. Everybody has a plan in regards to their money. We all have a plan already in regards to how we utilize our money. Every single person has a plan, but most people don't know what their plan is. Most people don't have a plan that's written down. And so I'm going to suggest that most people's plan is a really bad plan. You all have a plan, but because nobody actually knows what their plan is, most of our plans aren't all that good. Most people's plan in America is this. I'm going to consume everything I want or everything that I need to. I'm going to live first. I'm going to save if I'm able. You know, if there's a little bit left over at the end of the month, I'll put some aside in a, in a checking uh, savings account somewhere. And then if I am capable, I will maybe give something away. But, you know, that's really pretty low on my priority list. It's not something I'm going to do regularly, but only if my heart prompts me and pokes me. But here's the thing. When our heart does prompt us, when our heart does poke us to say, hey, I do want to give to this cause because I saw that commercial with Morgan Freeman's voice, you know, overlaying, and it was like so beautiful and heart-wrenching, and I wanted to give to that cause that I saw. I, I met somebody who was in need on the street corner. I, I saw a need within my own community, within my own church body, whatever it may be. I saw there was a need, but I didn't have the freedom to give because I've already spent everything. I've already put some in savings, and I don't have anything in addition to give away. It's typically how most people live. This is typically most people's plan. The consumption assumption, the idea that if it has come to me, then it must be for me, which drives the consume-first mentality that we just talked about, not only cripples households financially, but it leaves us incapable and unable to do anything meaningful with our finances. And my friends, the consumption assumption does cripple households. This will cripple your household financially if you live into this mentality. So we need to rethink the way that we manage our money. And it begins with this very core conviction. And this is something we talk about a lot We are not owners of our resources. We are not owners of our possessions. We are simply managers of what God has entrusted to us. And so this is our core conviction. It's something we'll be focusing on a lot this morning. We we mention this almost every single week within at least our prayers regarding our offerings that that we want to develop a, a faith and a belief that we are not owners of what we have, but we are simply managers of what God has entrusted to us. And the reason I know this is true is because if... What we have can be taken away. If we have can be taken away through, you know, a a fire, maybe it burns in a fire or someone steals it. Or when we die, certainly it's all taken away from us, right? Because we take nothing to the grave with us. If it can be taken away, then it wasn't ours in the first place. It just wasn't ours to begin with. If what we have can be taken away, then it wasn't ours really anyway. 
And if you can wrap your head around this very simple truth, this very core conviction, I guarantee you, my friends, that it'll begin to change everything for you. Everything about your financial situation, about your financial life, your generous life will begin to change. So we need to flip this whole financial posture on its head. Instead of a a live, gave, save, a, a live, save, give mentality, we need to develop a give first, save second, live mentality. And the question I really want to wrestle with you this morning is this. Is the disposition that you have towards your money, is it fear or is it trust? Is the disposition you have towards your money fear or trust? Now, here's the thing. I don't need to, like, you know, prompt a a whole lot of questions in regards to this because you already know what your disposition is. This very question alone, you can feel it in your gut what your disposition is. If you are afraid to go to the mailbox because of what you might find in there, guess what, my friends? Your disposition towards your money is fear. If you're afraid to open up your bank account, if you're afraid to go open up your credit card statement because you're afraid of what you're going to see there, your disposition is fear. If you worry about how you're going to put food on your table or clothes on your kid's back, then your disposition is that of fear. If thinking about money in general puts knots in your stomach or puts a weight upon your shoulders, the disposition that you have towards your money is fear. Now here's the thing, Ross. You, you, you know, you, you, you might be thinking, um, if you only knew the state of my financial situation, you'd understand why that fear is the disposition that I have towards my money. You'd understand why generosity is like the furthest, furthest thing from my mind. You would un, you'd get it, Ross. If you knew my situation, you would get it, right? Generosity is such a good idea, but it's just not something that I can be right now. It's not something I can do right now, right? Ross, you have no idea what my bills are like. You have no idea what my situation is like. You have no idea how far in debt I am. And that's true, I don't. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody's situation uh, of, of in regards to any of those questions, but here is what I know regarding debt. We live in a culture that convinces us that debt is actually a good idea. We've been convinced of this actually from a very young age. I don't know if you know this or not. We've been convinced of this at a very young age. We have been convinced that it is important, actually, to have credit cards and to accrue debt because if you ever want to buy a house, if you ever want to buy a car, if you ever want to get a loan from anybody, if you ever want to establish a good line of credit, then you need to begin to build some credit. Get that credit card out. Put some money on it, right? Go spend a little bit. Pay it off, yes, if you can, but you need to begin to uh, at least develop some trust with the lending company so that one day they will give you a loan. And so what happens on your 18th birthday? You come home, and you've got a stack full of cards. It's not even like you have to apply for these anymore. They send you the card in the mail on your 18th birthday. All you have to do is call a number and say, wow, I can have a credit card just like that. It's activated just like that. That's incredible. That's incredible. I can go out and I can do everything that I want. All my consumer desires and all my consumer dreams are now available to me, and I can go buy whatever I want with my $2,000 line of credit. Isn't that incredible? I'm an 18-year-old. I have no discipline. I have no self-control. I can go buy whatever I want with this $2,000, and all I have to do is pay 18% interest on it. That's, wow, that's, that's a deal, right? That's good. And so credit card borrowing, it's, it's, a, it's the worst. It's the worst way that you, can, <laughs> that you can borrow a significant amount of money just because it's too easy. All you have to do is take this little plastic car and you have to swipe it through a machine and anything that you want in that store that is within your line of credit can be yours. You want that new gaming system as an 18-year-old? Sure, go have it. 
You want that new wardrobe as an 18-year-old? Sure, go have it. You want the new pair of shoes? Go, sure, go have it. Just swipe that card through the machine. It's all yours. Walk away. And so you're an 18-year-old making minimum wage busing tables at your local restaurant. But you have a new wardrobe. You got a new pair of shoes. You charge your $2,000, and now you're only able to make your monthly payments. So for the next 32 years of your life, you're going to work off to pay those minimum payments. And in the process, you will have paid $10,000 for your new wardrobe and for your new shoes. Is it worth it? Seems like it is in the meantime, right? Seems like it is in the meantime. And you haven't even started college yet. And then four years later, you're going to have accrued $30,000 in student loans that you now have to pay off. And once you settle down in life, the average American household will accrue an additional $17,000 in credit card debt. That's up 10%, by the way, from just 10 years ago. And so we're not getting any better at this as a nation. We're only getting worse. Now, we've been talking about how the number one word associated with money in our culture is fear and how it is worry, and for good reason, right? Because even that conversation about how much debt we have as a nation and $30,000 in student loans and all those things, it probably kind of ties your stomach up a little bit, at least for some of you. See, if this is the average situation, no wonder worry is the number one word associated with money because the questions that immediately come into our mind in regards to money is, am I ever going to be able to retire? You know, am I, am I, am I ever going to be able to, to buy a house or buy a car or, or move out of my parents' house? Am I ever going to pay off these student loans? If, if I lose my job, what's going to happen to me? You know, what's going to happen to my kids? You know, if I get in an accident, how am I ever going to pay for it? And then... <laughs> And then we do the craziest things, you know? Like we have all this worry and this fear in regards to our money, and then we just do the craziest things. We spend everything or more than we make, and then we have debt, and then we don't have any margin, and then we have something to really worry about. And then we place worry on top of worry on top of worry. Because the most common response in the American culture in regards to our money, in regards to the worry in regards to our money, is that when we have this fear gripping us regarding our money, the most common response in the American culture, and this is so odd and this is so crazy, maybe some of you have done this a few times, is to take that credit card and go to the mall and do some shopping therapy. (laughs) I don't have any money to buy anything. I'm in debt more than I can even imagine, but I'm going to go because it makes me feel good to get that new pair of shoes. And so I'm just going to go and I'm going to do a little shopping therapy, or I'm going to go out to eat, I'm going to sit at a bar, and I'm going to spend money that I don't have. And so we go and we spend, putting us further into debt, which leaves us with even less margin, which leaves us with even more worry, and around and around and around and around we go. See, consequently, we we worry about future consumption, something that so many of us often do. We worry about future consumption. We then consume more than we can afford, and we carry consumer debt which leaves us with no margin for future consumption, and then we have something to worry about. And so what do we do in regards to that worry? Well, we go and we consume more, which leaves us with consumer debt, which leaves us with even less margin than we have, and it leaves us with even greater worry. And so what do we do? Well, we go to the mall and we buy more. We carry consumer debt, leaving leaving us with even less margin. And then we have something to worry about. And we've convinced ourselves that we have a money problem. And we think, you know, if I just had more money, then all of my problems would be 
erased. If I just had more money, that would be the solution. We've convinced ourselves we have a money problem. But the vast majority of us who worry about money, my friends, we do not have a money problem. We just don't. We don't have a money problem. What we have are actually three different problems. What we have is a self-control problem. We have a contentment problem. And we have a discipline problem. And for those of us who follow Jesus, and by the way, if you don't follow Jesus, you don't have to listen to any of this, okay? I don't care. I think you should listen to it, but you don't have to listen to any of this. For those of us who, list, uh, who follow Jesus, what we have is a spiritual problem. And so I'm going to ask you again. Is your disposition towards your money fear or is it trust? <clears throat> because if you are worried about your finances, it is because you are trusting in riches you're trusting in money rather than in the one who can richly provide. And that's crazy. It's, 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 it's crazy that we view ourselves as owners and consumers and Jesus says that there is such a better way to live your life. There's such a better way to live your life and it's the way of generosity. Where you wrap your entire financial life around generosity and you begin to view the world through a different lens, the lens of Generosity. Because generous people do not assume it's theirs to consume. And this is a shift in thinking that makes all of the difference in the world. That because it's come to us, it doesn't mean that it's ours to consume. Just because it's come to us does not mean it's ours to consume. You see, those generous people have rejected the consumption assumption. They've rejected it. They've they've thrown it away. Most people think if it's come to me, it must be for me. But Jesus said no. Just because it has come to you, it may not be for you. And if you live like you are an owner and a consumer, Jesus would say that there is a better way. That I didn't create you for that. That I created you for something so much more because, my friends, ownership is a myth. Ownership is a myth, and that mentality will always lead you to the same place. It will always lead you deeper into discontentment. No matter how new or shiny or pretty or pristine that thing is today, guess what, my friends? There's a new thing coming on the market tomorrow. You will never be content if you think consumption is the way to go. We just do not live in a society or in a culture or in a world that helps us be content people. It just does not happen. And so living like a consumer, living with the assumption that it's all for you, no matter how much money you make, you will always be on the brink of discontentment, which is going to drive that cycle around and around and around. But you break the cycle. You get out of the cycle. You get out of the crazy go-round, if you will by thinking and acting differently when it comes to your money. So you break free from it all by inheriting a disposition of generosity, a disposition of trust towards your money. And the only way off this is to rethink your finances. Generosity, my friend, is that off-ramp. Generosity is the off-ramp. You reorganize, you reprioritize around generosity rather than consumption, and it will begin to change everything. Because the reason that you made those choices, you know, back when you were 18 to buy that wardrobe, to spend that $2,000, to consume was because you put your trust in a lender. You said, hey, I want this thing, so I'm going to trust this lender to take care of me, to provide for my needs. I'm going to trust this, this corporation to take care of my needs, and I'm going to use this credit card in order to do that. You've trusted in a lender to meet your needs rather than in the God who can richly provide for you to meet your needs. And by collapsing into debt, you have put yourself under the authority of that corporation. You've put your you put yourself under the authority of that person or the authority of that credit, and you have actively enslaved yourself to them. Here's what the proverb says. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave to the lender. 
And I'm just going to venture a bet this morning that there are a lot of people in our room this morning who feel like a slave, who feel like a slave to the borrower. And you don't feel like you are free, and you feel like you're never going to get out of the pit that you are in. That financial pit that you have dug yourselves, you feel like you're never going to get out of it. And so you worry, and you stress, and fear becomes the disposition by which you live your life in regards to your money. And it keeps you up at night, and it feels like there's a weight around your neck, and you are enslaved to the borrower. And so my challenge before the hopeful, encouraging part, and my friends, there is a really hopeful and encouraging part to this whole conversation, is this. If you do not have enough money to pay off your credit card every single month, then you need to get that thing as far away from you as you possibly can. Cut it up. Throw it in the trash. Throw it off a cliff somewhere. Cancel it first. Some guy wandering around that cliff's bottom is going to find a credit card, all right? Get rid of that thing until you are financially stable in order to get yourself back upon your feet. But if you are thinking, Ross, that's just not possible. Right, because this crazy go-round is like my life, right? This is just how I lived. I've dug myself into this pit, and it's the only way that I can get, I, that's the only way I know how to live, right? I, I mean, I, I use my credit card to pay my mortgage every month. I use it to pay my car payment. I use it to buy my food. I have no other means to get out of it. If you just think it's not, it's not possible, if you think you need your credit card to survive, then I'm thinking that you're probably not living within your means. And the reason that you're not living within your means is because you lack self-control. And the reason you're not living within your means is because you lack contentment. And the reason you're not living within your means is because you lack discipline. And so my friends, you need to make a plan. You need to make a plan, and the first thing that plan needs to entail is to attend a Financial Peace University, which you're going to be offering in uh, January, just past the new year. You need to make a plan to attend Financial Peace University. We'll be talking more about that, how you sign up for that, et cetera, et cetera, over the next couple weeks. But make a plan to be at Financial Peace University. And then you need to begin seeing yourself as a manager, not an owner. That needs to be the core conviction of your financial disposition, that I am a manager, I am not an owner. And then you need to find some accountability around this issue. And then, and this is so important, and this is what's going to drive the rest of our conversation, you need to begin to give. You need to begin to give away your resources. You need to begin to give away your finances. And here is where this is going to get so hopeful and so encouraging because this is a really exciting conversation. And most pastors don't think of it that way, all right? Most pastors don't think of this giving conversation as exciting, but I believe this is such an exciting conversation. The reason we need to begin giving, even if it is just a small amount or it seems impossible, is because we need to look our fear in the face. And we need to say, you will no longer be my master in regards to how I utilize my resources. And I'm going to begin backing the claim that I am no longer a owner of my resources. I am simply a manager. I'm going to back the claim that I'm no longer going to trust in my riches, but now I'm going to trust in the one who will richly provide for my needs. You've got to put your money, in other words, where your mouth is. You say you trust in God, you need to put your money where your mouth is. See, we've trusted in our riches, or the lack thereof, for long enough, and it's brought us to this place of despair. Right? We've been in that pit, and now we don't know how to get out of it. But what's so fascinating about being in despair is that often when our backs are against the wall, you know, and our, our financial system situation is just crumbling before us, and the bottom is dropping out, 
We don't feel like we have any security. We're going to cry out to God, asking him to do something. God, please, I'm in this horrible situation regarding my finances. And, and God, I just don't know what to do. So please, God, do anything. Meet me in this need. God, be here, please. I need you now. And my friends, if that is going to be your prayer eventually, if that is going to be the thing that you do, you're going to cry out to God in desperation, asking him to help at some point in your life. Why not, right now, when you're still stable, invite God into your finances? Why wait to cry out to God and say, God, take ownership of my finances? Because the truth is that God is looking for faithful stewards. He's looking for faithful managers who will prove, who will prove that they can be trusted with vast portions of his kingdom not for our own personal consumption, but to advance God's kingdom work. And so he wants managers who can handle his wealth. That's what he's looking for. God wants managers who can handle his wealth. And if, being, and if you begin managing your wealth, the, man, the wealth that he has given you, remember that we are not owners, we are simply managers. If you begin managing his wealth, then whether you're free from debt or in the thick of it, if we remember that we are a manager and not an owner, if you begin managing God's wealth and doing so faithfully, then I believe that God will entrust us with even more wealth. Now, here's the thing. I don't mean that if you give me a dollar, God is going to give you 10 in return. I'm not a health and wealth gospel preacher. Now, there are some people who stand on stages like this, much bigger stages like this, in front of stadiums full of people, and they'll say, hey, give me some seed money, my friends. Give me just a little bit of your money, and God will bless you beyond your wildest imagination, where you can go and buy that big house, and you can buy the yacht, and you can buy the newest car. Your life will be rich. All you have to do is give me a little bit of your seed money. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not health and wealth preacher. I'm saying that God is all about advancing his kingdom. And so if you align your finances to, align, to, to advance God's kingdom, then he will entrust you with greater wealth to advance his kingdom even more. And so in Paul's second letter to the Christians in Corinth, he commends them for their generosity to Christians in, in another city. But sensing that there's this natural tension, right? Because there is a natural tension, right? We, 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 we have this money and it's like, man, we have this like, oh, there's this pull towards it. Like this consumption assumption is really driving me. I feel like I just need to keep it towards myself. Even though they were generous, they were having this tendency to, to hoard and to keep it for themselves instead of giving it towards God's kingdom. Paul has to remind them of this very simple principle. And so this passage that we're about to discuss is so crucial to understanding God's response to our giving. And here's how he begins. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. My friends, this is a principle, and it's a principle that has to be adopted by faith. It's a principle that has to be adopted by faith. The law, the law of the harvest applies to our giving. So Paul is basically saying that those who are generous will receive something back in return for their generosity by participating in God's kingdom work. And not only that, there is a direct correlation between how much we give and how much we will receive in return. So the more you sow, the more you give. The more you sow, uh, sorry, the more you sow, the more you reap. The more you sow, the more you reap. If you give like you were supposed to, God will continue to give you more. And again, to convince you that I'm not a health and wealth gospel preacher, I'm not saying that if you give me some seed money, God is going to give you crazy amounts of money. I'm not promoting any individual pocketbook. I'm promoting the advancement of God's kingdom, and that really does make all the difference. See, Paul isn't talking to people trying to get rich, nor is he trying to pad his own pockets. He was simply explaining how God wants faithful men and women to act as conduits for distributing his wealth around the world. 
not for personal gain, but for kingdom progress. And so this is hopeful, and I hope that it is encouraging to you, especially to reluctant givers. For so many of us, we think that if I am to give my money away, then I'm losing something. That this was mine, and it's no longer mine because I gave it away. I once had something, and now I don't. But what Paul is saying is that when we give to God's kingdom, when we give to God's work, we are not losing something. We are investing in something. This is an investment. It's not a loss. This is an investment. It's not a loss. So think of a farmer. (coughs) When a farmer sows a seed, he's not losing seed. He's gaining a crop. He takes the seed which he has in his hand, and he throws it upon the ground. He's not losing seed. He's going to gain a harvest. And so what rational farmer would come along and say, you know, I'm, oh, I don't know, I'm just afraid to sow my seed because if I throw this seed upon the ground, then I'm not going to have any seed anymore. You know, what would happen if I need this seed in the future? No rational farmer would ever say that. Every farmer knows that if he wants a crop, he's got to sow his seed. If he wants a harvest, he has got to sow his seed. It doesn't benefit him to stuff his pockets full of seed. And neither does it say, uh, neither does it do anybody any good to pray. God, will you please give me a crop? I'm reluctant to, to plant my seed, but God, will you just, you know, some, some magic way give me a crop? Please, God, I'm just asking you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just, I, want, I want a crop, but I'm afraid to sow my seed. See, the wisest thing that I think we can do, the wisest thing that I think any of us can do in regards to our money is to begin to sow it into God's kingdom. And when we do it, God gets involved in our finances. And so how are we to do this? How, how, how are we to let God get involved in our finances? Well, Paul continues, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Because it involves calculations and mathematics and spreadsheets and whatnot, it's always going to have the potential for, for giving, for being generous, just to become some you know, mathematical formulaic exercise. But if you are giving what you've decided in your heart to give, it should be full of joy. It should be a cheerful experience, not a burden. See, somehow Paul ties this this cheerful experience of giving into making a plan. It's what you decided in your heart to give. You've made a plan. It's what you've decided in your heart. You have a plan to be generous. And so here's what God wants us to do. He wants us all to go home. He wants us to to go home, to, to look at the wealth that he has entrusted to us. Remember that we are managers. We are not owners. Remember that, okay? God wants us to look at our wealth, the wealth that he has entrusted to us. He wants us to determine in our heart how much we are going to sow into his kingdom. That's a self-determined thing, what you have decided to give. And he wants us to consider thoughtfully our current circumstances, our, our life situation, our potential. He wants to look at our finances. He wants us to talk to our spouses if we have spouses. He wants us to talk to our families, and then he wants us to pray about this. Pray about it. Put it before God and say, God, now what are you telling me to give? What are you asking me, God, to give? What is my plan going to be? And then, whether in good times or in bad times, we stick faithfully to the plan that we believe God has given us, because it is a God-ordained plan. And as you do so, God will return to you and bless you according to what you have given. Now, this is not a promise that you're going to get rich, right? It's a promise that God of all earthly treasures, the God who owns everything already, wants to involve you in distributing his wealth and accomplishing his worldwide purposes. 
And so God will stabilize and provide you with all you need so that you can be an agent of stabilizing and helping the world with God's kingdom mission. Paul continues, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, right, God is not going to leave you needing or in want. He's not going to leave you out there on your own. God will meet you where you need. You will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. So Paul is saying that there's a direct connection between righteousness, which is just a fancy way of saying right relationship, or living as we were intended to, or living rightly, or you know, living as the way that God had created us to, to live. There's a direct connection between all of that and investing in God's kingdom work, investing our resources in God's kingdom work. Participating with God and walking alongside him on mission is a crucial component of being rightly human. So when people come to me and say, Ross, I'm, I'm depressed or, or I have anxiety or I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with boredom, you know, anybody who isn't experiencing life rightly, one of, the, one of the first things I ask them is, well, you know, what is your charitable work like? You know, what do you do all day? Like, do you just sit and are you self-consuming? Is everything that you do, your time, your energy, your resources, are they all drawn for your own sake? Or are you giving yourself away to others? Are you giving what God has entrusted to you, and are you giving it away? Are you outward focused? Because God is on mission, and getting involved in God's mission on the world, taking our place in God's plan is that is so much bigger than our own individual self-consuming lives. I mean, this is where healing begins. It's when we look outward into the world. And not only this, Paul continues, Now he who gives seed to the sower and bread for food will also give and increase your store of seed and enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. This is where our series come from. God who gives us seed to the sower. So not only will investing our resources in God's plans increase his trust in our stewardship, and therefore our storehouses, but we will glean a harvest of righteousness, he says. We will glean a harvest of right relationship. We will be the people that God has intended us to be. And so the more that we give, the more that we love, the more that we stretch, the more that we are generous with what we have, my friends, the more rightly human we become. This is how God designed us to function. In fact, you will be enriched in every single way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. When we are faithful to give generously, we do a good service to God. And as a result, he will come back to us for more. When he wants to distribute his wealth in the future, he's going to look at those who have been faithful managers in the past, who have taken all of these things that he has entrusted to them, used them wisely for his kingdom expansion, and he's going to say, I'm going to provide you more. I'm going to entrust you with more so that you can be even more generous. See, God's offer to you is that as long as you are giving partnership with him, he will take care of your needs. That is his offer. As long as you are in a giving partnership with him, he will take care of you. He will sustain you. He will not leave you high and dry. This doesn't mean that you can go then with all that he has given to you and indulge in some lavish shopping spree because that wouldn't be a good faithful steward. But it simply means that he will provide faithfully for all of your needs. Enter into a partnership with God. Begin to view yourself as a manager and begin giving your resources away and God will take care of you. Because if you are generous, he will make you rich so that you can be even more generous. It's not for your self-consumption. It is for even greater generosity. But he wants you investing in his kingdom first. Not so you get what you need, but because you desire generously to share in his work. And my friends, this should excite us. 
Right, this is a really exciting principle. This is a really, really exciting principle. We at Restoration Church, we never ask through money, through guilt, or through manipulation. That's just not our MO. That's not the way we talk about money. We always talk about money in really exciting ways. We're hoping to raise up a body of faithful followers of Jesus in every area of our life, and our finances are just one of those areas. And so if we want to continue to grow and to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it does require some financial assistance from this whole body. That's just part of the realities of it. So every now and then, it is good to inform you of where we are in regards to our money. Now, if you've been around for a little while, you know that uh, back uh, just before Easter of this last year, we made some really big uh, goals as we believe that um, God was calling us to do some really, really amazing things. And so one of those things was to um, increase our budget amount so that we could hire some staff to take some of the burden off of me and so that we could continue to grow uh, in, in a way. And we had an unanimously approved budget for that. But here's the date. Here, here are the numbers as to date. As to day, we are roughly $12,000 in the red. Now, that's not a huge deal, all things considering, but if you were to extrapolate that over the next uh, seven months until our fiscal year ends, we'll be roughly $31,000 in the red. Now, again, this isn't um, like earth-shattering. This won't end Restoration Church by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it will certainly stunt our growth. And this is a lot more complicated than this simple uh, slide makes it sound. Um, But this would certainly stunt our growth. But here's the thing, guys. We are growing. You know, four years ago when we started Restoration Church, uh, we, had, we landed in the fall of 2013 with an average attendance of 140 people. And now fall of 2017, we have an average attendance of 295 people. We baptized 65 people in those four years. Um, we've seen incredible growth. That's 50% growth in four years. God is doing amazing things. A lot of lives are being transformed um, through the work of Restoration Church. So this should be very, uh, very exciting. But at this rate, in another four years, we'll have an average um, weekly attendance of roughly 600, you know, if you were to take 50% again and, and extrapolate that over the next four years. And that's if God doesn't do something crazy in, in the meantime. But if that's the case, like, this building just won't support that. And already our children's wings are busting at the seams downstairs. Like, there's no room, you know, to put more kids down there. And so imagine what this room would feel like, you know, if we had 600 people. Like, there's only 190 seats in here, so... If we had 600 people, it would be a little crowded. Uh, we have two services. We could, of course, go to three. We could go to four, even if we absolutely needed to. That's really, really not appealing to me. Um, <laughs> so there are things that we could do, of course. There are things that we could do. Um, but some of them just aren't logical, right? So we have these really big dreams of how God is going to be using us to advance his kingdom throughout this region. We have these really, really big dreams, and it's excited to be a part of it. But in order to do that, we would need to continue to increase our ministry budget enough to provide additional salaries and, and begin putting money aside for down payments on additional space and new space and increasing our, budget, our emissions budget so that we could continue to reach our community locally but also globally. And so I, I want you to, I mean, dream, dream with me really, really, really quickly. Like, with sufficient funds, we could hire more pastoral staff to help care and disciple this body to do that even more effectively. We could completely fund Treehouse, which is the, the youth um, program that meets out of Restoration Church. We could completely meet all of their financial needs, and we could help them then um, reach more hurting youth within our area, which would be an incredible blessing. We could build out new space in a different building, and yes, of course, it would have a coffee shop, because I talk about that a lot, right? It would have a, the, the indoor play facility for all the kids, and it would be a natural draw, not just on Sunday mornings for people, but it would be a natural draw throughout the community, where, where every single day people could come and experience the love of Christ, and it wouldn't have to be just, you know, in the context of a, of a Sunday morning. 
There'd be a natural draw, and that natural draw then through the funds that people would pay for these services would help to pay for the brick and mortar. So the, the, the generous funds that you guys give weekly to Restoration Church could go to, to more ministry needs and missional needs. We could liberate entire villages and third world countries. We could build orphanages and hospitals. We could do all sorts of amazing things to see life and transformation and the gospel do its transformational work throughout the world. And so I'm going to ask you just one more time. Is your disposition towards your money fear or is it trust? Is it fear or is it trust? And my challenge to you is to rise up. And if you are not so already, to let God get involved in your finances, to look your fear in the face and say, you are no longer going to be my master, but I'm going to trust in the one who can richly provide. And so I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we um, sing two final songs uh, together. Now, here's the thing. You'll probably have noticed that we have yet to receive an offering, okay? Now, I did not do this. I did not put the offering here at the end of a message like this to guilt you into anything. I did not do it as a manipulation tactic. Rather, it is to prompt your trust. It's to, it's to give you an opportunity to say, you know what? Today is going to be the day that I look fear in the face. And I'm not going to wait till next week. I'm going I'm to look fear in the face right now. I'm going to say, you are not going to be my master any longer, but I'm going to trust in the one who can richly provide and so we're going to take a song, and we're going to spend the next four minutes, and here's what all I'm asking of you. I want you to simply pray. You don't, don't, don't feel like you need to stand and sing along. Don't feel like um, you need to do other than just to, to, to bow your head and ask God. God, what are you asking me to do with the resources you have entrusted to me? Right? Everything I have is yours, God. I recognize that. I'm, I'm simply a manager. I'm not an owner. So God, what are you asking me to do with the resources you have entrusted to me? Take some time. Take the next four minutes to pray about that. And then we're going to receive an offering at the end of that. And, and this morning, we're going to introduce three ways of giving. So you can give online to Restoration Church. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Um, you can give online. You can go to restorationchurchpa.org. You can go to our partner tab and then go to the invest tab, and you can give online. That's a really easy way to give. Just put your in- information in there, and you can give um, throughout the week. As you're paying your bills, right, you could just give it right there. It's a really easy way to do this. But this morning, we're introducing a mobile option for you to give. So if you were to text a dollar amount, say $5 or $10 or $100 or whatever it may be, whatever God is calling you to give, to 84321, text an amount there, it's going to prompt you to put a little information in, you know, put your debit card information in, put an email address. It's going to take you two minutes to fill that out. And then in the future, you know, next week you come back and you're like, you know what, I want to I give $25 to Restoration Church today. All you have to do is type in 25 to 84321 and voila, there it is. It's done. So that it's so easy. It's so simple. It's a super easy way to give because very few people, you know, often carry checkbooks around. Very few people carry cash, but you could give through your mobile device in the same way through your debit card. And then, of course, there's the in-service option. If you did bring a cash um, this morning and you'd like to, to give that to the cause of Christ here at Restoration, or if you want to write a check, you can do so uh, to Restoration Church PA. But these are three very simple ways to give um, to the cause of Christ here. Help God get involved in your finances Look your fear in the face and say, today is going to be day I'm going to trust God with my resources. We're going to sing one final song, and again, all I want you to do is pray right now. That's all I'm asking you to do. I don't know what God is going to tell you. I don't know if it's, a, if it's little, it's a lot, whatever it may be. Um, but today is the day. You know, I remember uh, several, several years ago, my wife and I decided one day we were going to start giving 10% off the top. The very first check we were going to write every single month, 10% to our local church. We just said we were going to entrust God with our finances. And it changed our entire financial disposition. 
It changed everything about our lives. It was a brilliant, brilliant decision, and God has not failed to provide for every single need that we have had yet. And so take the next four minutes as we sing this song, pray, ask God what he's calling you to do, and then as an act of faith, I encourage you to do it. Thank <clears throat> you.